Today's topic is taken from Hebrews 11, verse 39. It says, All these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. So what he's saying is that the men who are most lauded for their faith and their obedience to God, they came short of the fulfillment of the very thing they gave their lives for. They died in faith not having received what was promised so that they would not be made perfect without us. What does this mean except that they are made perfect with us? That is to say, they, through their obedience to God, they blazed miles on this road, this highway of holiness, this path of the righteous, this journey of exodus. And yet, they stopped short of their destination. Their road came close to the shores of a new country. It came close to the boundaries and borders of a new country, but it stopped short. They never saw the kingdom of God present with power, as Brother Dan spoke yesterday. Jesus said that the apostles would see that. They would see that kingdom become a reality in their lives. But all the heroes of faith, they died not having received what was promised. But if we will build on their efforts and complete the miles of exodus and restoration that they began, then by God's grace, we will legitimize the sacrifices they made. If we stop where they stopped, then we delegitimize. We disregard everything they gave their lives for. But if we continue and take it all the way into the fullness of God's restoration and purpose, then they are made perfect with us. They say, what we gave our lives for was worth it because you completed it. You couldn't have done it without us, but we are made perfect with you. This morning I want to talk about how we complete that journey of the faithful, how we legitimize their sacrifice, how they're made perfect with us. If we're going to do this, we have to recognize the responsibility that has been put on us. It's the responsibility to build the spiritual temple, the spiritual kingdom, to make the kingdom of God a reality in our day. And we know that Ezekiel spoke of our day when he described a temple, the final temple, as something that could not be made with human hands. The vision that he gave in Ezekiel 43, it's not a physical temple, it's a spiritual temple. It's the temple Jesus spoke of when he said, destroy this temple and in three days I will build it back. And they did not understand that he was speaking to them about his body. It's John 2.19. 
We're called to engage in building the temple that Peter spoke of when he says, you also as lively stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. It's what Paul spoke of in 1 Corinthians 3.16 when he said, Do you not know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. It's what Paul also spoke of in Ephesians 2 when he said, For through Jesus we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself, the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together to be a dwelling place of God in the spirit. So we're very excited about the third temple, and we're not talking about a stone structure in Jerusalem. We're talking about a people who are fitly framed together. We're talking about a spiritual nation, a holy nation, a royal priesthood prepared to be a dwelling place for God. And Ezekiel, when he gives the vision for this temple before Jesus, before Paul, about 800 years beforehand, he says this, the Lord says this to, to Ezekiel, as for you, son of man, describe the temple to the house of Israel. Who is the house of Israel today? It is the congregation of faith. It is those who walk in the steps of faith as our father Abraham walked in. Abraham was not a Jew. He was a wandering Aramean. He was a citizen of Ur until he heard the voice of God and started obeying it. And we become sons of Abraham and part of the spiritual Israel of God when we hear the voice of God and step out in faith on our exodus just as he did. So this is what he says. As for you, the word of the Lord to Ezekiel, as for you, son of man, describe the temple to the house of Israel that they may be ashamed of their iniquities. Tell them the plan. Give them the picture of what God is doing, that a contrast may be drawn between what they're living and what God has promised. That's what he's saying. Describe the temple that they may be ashamed of their iniquities and let them measure the plan. If they are ashamed, make known to them the design of the house, its structures, its exits, its entrances, all its designs, all its statutes and all its laws, and write it in their sight so that they may observe its whole design and all its statutes to do it. God wants to reveal a revolutionary concept and plan to the church here in 2019. He wants to give us a vision for the restoration of his body, an administration suitable for the fullness of times. But he's not going to reveal it to those who are not ashamed at the current state of the church. 
there has to be some dissatisfaction inside of us. There has to be some feeling of this is not sufficient. This is not good enough. Dissatisfaction is the necessary prerequisite to revelation and revelation is the necessary prerequisite to construction. In the book of Revelations, the church is described as a harlot drunk on the wine of the world's luxuries. Revelation shows that in the last days, the bride of Christ is going to commit spiritual adultery. When did this adultery begin, according to what we just learned? About 325, when the Constantinian synthesis, combination or marriage, took place. This man who never professed faith in Jesus, who never called Jesus Lord, who never even invoked Jesus, but who simply appealed to the Christian God as a kind of endorsement uh, in the heavens to his political agenda. This is when he married the church to the world. What does the word Babylon mean? It comes from Babel when he confused their language. The word Babylon means confusion to put two things together that don't go. A fusion, a false fusion, confusion. That's what Babylon means. So when he talks in Revelations about the church being caught in Babylon, he's talking about the very Constantinian synthesis, the very amalgamation between worldly visions and spiritual visions between the table of the Lord and the table of demons, as Paul put it. Between the things of God and the things of Belial, as Paul also put it. So a mixture is going to describe and define the 21st century church. The the church of the end times is going to be a church in a mixture. Like it says of Ephraim, Ephraim has mixed himself with the nations. He does not know that it, that it has robbed him of his strength. So the, tw- the, the, the end time church is going to be mixed and combined with the world. And they're not even going to know it because Babylon is called Mystery Babylon the Great. Some city in Iraq is not a mystery. So theologians who tell you that that describes some event that takes place in a desert in the, in the Middle East, they're completely missing the point. He is talking about a spiritual phenomenon, a spiritual problem. And it is everywhere throughout Western culture. It is this mixture. It is this Babylonian amalgamation. Every time the world takes a step toward the release of the man of sin... Do we not see the world's lover, the church, following close behind her? Not even a decade elapses between when popular culture begins to promote homosexuality and transgender behavior and when the church begins to anoint homosexual bishops. If the world accepts cohabitation as the new norm, soon the church will also. If the world embraces evolution as the final word of science, 
and the priesthood of man through science, rest assured, the church will also. If the world inverts the God-given order in families and marriages, the church will also, and they'll invent theologies to defend it. If the world embraces radical feminism and the demonizing of fatherhood, the church will also. If the world adopts psychoanalysis as the solution for the human conditioned human soul, the church will also. They'll replace pastoring with counseling. If the world throws out centuries-old customs of modesty and gender-specific dress, the church will also. Because the church is the bride of the world and trying to be the bride of Christ. The church is not in an exclusive covenant relationship with Jesus. The church is in adultery. I gave you some of the statistics yesterday regarding mainline Christianity in the most Christian country on earth, America. And I will forego reading all of those now because I think we still remember some of the statistics. 66% of adult Christians will lose their participation in church between the ages of 23 and 30. 66%. A study came out this past week that came to my attention last night that says for the first time in America's history, the group that labels themselves as no religion is the largest group in the country. For the first time in America's history, they asked people, are you Protestant, are you Catholic, or do you have no religion? And for decades, Protestant or Catholic would be the two largest groups, no religion would be the smallest. And finally, here in 2019, those who profess no religion make up the largest block of the American population. The church is not in the fourth great awakening. The church is in the great darkening. The church is slipping into a dark age of confusion like never before. The church is in Egypt. The church is in Babylon. The church is in the luxury lap of the world. But in the book of Revelations, John hears a loud voice coming from heaven and sending a message to the church of our day. Revelations 18.4, I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people, so that you will not participate in her sins and receive of her plagues. For her sins have piled up as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. This global system that represents the institutionalized mind of man, this, this deified statism, as we've heard this morning, this is, a, this is repulsive in the eyes of God. And he is sending a message to his church. And the message is, get out from among them. Come out of her, my people. That means God's people are in her. And what is her? It is Babylon the great. Come out. 
the Lord says. We also know the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians 6, where he says, Come out from among them and be separate, and I will be your father, and you will be my sons and daughters. And again, the Apostle John says, If any man loves the world or the things of the world, the love of the Father is not in him. God wants to have a relationship with the church, but it is a mutually exclusive relationship. Separation precedes adoption. Be separate and I'll be your father. If any man loves the world, the love of the father is not in him. We have got to examine our hearts and find all those places where we have an ungodly infatuation with the world. What have we received from the culture surrounding us that we just can't think about giving up? Separation precedes adoption. Be separate and I'll be your father. That's not what I said, that's what Paul said. Come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord, and I will be your father. And then John, if any man loves the world or the things of the world, the love of fatherhood, the love of God the Father is not in him. We will remain bereft of the Father's love. The church will never become the power force in the world today until it separates itself from its adulterous infatuation with this culture that is not of God. We have to re-examine how this amalgamation took place. And we've heard a little bit of that. We've heard how the church and the world became intertwined in this false union. When a great skyscraper is being built, the most critical phase in the process is certainly the foundation. If you get the foundation right, then the whole building is going to be true to that standard. But if your foundation is off, even by a degree or two, as you build that skyscraper into the sky, 30 stories, 40, 50, 100 stories high, whatever degree of flaw or inaccuracy was in the foundation at the starting level, it is going to become a cataclysmic problem in the upper floors of the building. That's what's happening right now. We are in the upper floors of a teetering church. We are at the top of a building called Christianity and we can feel the whole tower lilting towards a great fall. One small tremor one little upset in the cultures of this world can send people's faith crumbling to the ground. We have seen this time and again when believers are those who profess to be followers of God, when they find themselves in times of upheaval, cataclysm, war, crisis, there's always this refrain, where is God? Or where was God? 
And if we believe the Bible, there are troubles coming on the, on the world. There are troubles coming. And it does not say that Western culture is going to be exempt from these troubles. And the kind of faith that has been fostered and injected into Christianity here in the 21st century is not the kind of faith that is going to be able to face the troubles that are on the horizon. And as people who call ourselves Christians, we have got to have a burden for the church that says, God, if my people were to go through some of the troubles that your people have suffered in the past, is their faith sufficient to see them through? Is their faith genuine gold refined in the fire? Or is it fool's gold and make-belief? Is it assumption? We're not here to be enlightened in our heads. We're here to be provoked to change the church in our day. Because there is a tidal wave coming against it. And if we don't prepare it for what is coming, we're going to be accountable for the truth we suppressed in unrighteousness. We have seen the church suffer in places like Indonesia. We have seen Christians go through horrible, horrible things in centuries past. But we have got to see what's coming. It says there is a time of Jacob's trouble coming at the end, such as has never come nor ever will come again. And the church is not ready for that. The tower is starting to tremble. Hebrews 12, at that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised once more I will shake not only the earth, but heaven also. The words once more signify the removal of everything that can be shaken. That is, created things so that the unshakable things may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving an unshakable kingdom, let us be filled with gratitude so we can worship God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is an all-consuming fire. Through the writer of Hebrews, the Lord says that there is a shaking coming. And he says what's going to happen through this shaking is everything that is created by man is going to be shaken loose and it's going to be ruined. So that the things that are from God and that are not created by man may be shown to be from him. They may remain. And what I want to su suggest to you is that a lot of what makes up our belief system and the whole exoskeletal structure of the church, it is made by man. And it is a kind of belief system, doctrines, and pieces of truth that are going to shake in the earthquake that is coming. In places that are prone to serious earthquakes, such as New Zealand, where some of our brothers and sisters are from here this morning. In places like that in California, they have to undergo an earthquake test. Building structures have to be tested. So they will build a small building and they will manufacture a false earthquake, a mini baby earthquake. And they will see what structures really can endure the shaking that is coming. And they will nix this structure and that structure. No, it won't work, won't work. Okay, this 
is what has been able to hold together in the small shakings. We have hope that it's going to hold together in the big shakings. And we need to look around us because every trial that an individual goes through, every little bit of persecution that a fellowship or church goes through, they represent the test shakings of the earthquakes that are coming. And there are certain models, there are certain understandings about faith, about God, about the Holy Spirit, about the body, about covenant and commitment. And when those structures go through the baby shakings, they fall to pieces. And that's what I'm describing in these statistics. 66% of young adults, Christian adults in America, they fall to pieces. But God is wanting to give us a model that when it goes through the loss of a child, the change of plans, the upset of life, somehow through persecution, through slander, through the iron furnace of modernity, somehow this little city on a hill stays intact and it's revealed to have been built with materials that are not made by man. It's revealed to have been joined with truths that are not made by man, but that are given from God. And that's the Jerusalem we want, the Jerusalem that is descending from above. That means it comes from God, just like the pattern for the temple came from the mountain, came from God. In the same way, there's a pattern from the, for the church that comes from God, from the anointing. And that is not something that man concocts and makes up on his own. So what are some of the materials that were put into place and how did they come? We know that Jesus and the apostles warned us of builders who would try to build with wood hay and stubble. Remember? Paul said, I have laid a foundation, but let any man take heed how he builds, for the day is coming that is going to test his work. It's going to be tested with fire. They warned us that false teachers and false prophets would arise. Matthew 7 was the first time Jesus warned. He said, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their adherence to orthodoxy. Is that what he says? No. You will know them by their fruits. He doesn't say you won't know them. He doesn't say it's unknowable. He says you will know them. There's something inside of us that when we see fruit that we desire, we want to say, well, that's powerful fruit, but I just don't know if it's of God. No, actually you do. You're just afraid to admit it to yourself because you're afraid of what it might cost you. He said, you will know them by their fruits. Fruits are not appearances. Appearances is something you hang on the outside, but fruits have life in them. When somebody eats an appearance, they're not satisfied. But when somebody takes a bite out of a peach, there's actual nutrients and energy that goes into their body. And the church, the true church of God is going to have fruits that people can partake of that actually put life of the spirit inside of them. You will know them by their fruits. 
You, will, you cannot gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles, can you? So if there are figs on it, my goodness, become part of the tree. Don't call it a thistle with an anomaly of a lot of grapes. Jesus said in Matthew 15, in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. The most useless form of worship, that's what the word is, useless worship do they offer to me. The most useless kind of worship is when we teach as doctrines the precepts of men. When we don't know the difference between a doctrine and an idea. When we don't know the difference between something that can be shaken and something that can't be shaken. When we don't know the difference between something that has been handed down from our great fathers, such as Justin Martin, Martyr and Origen and Clement of Alexandria and good old Constantine the Great and something that really came from God. What is the difference between a doctrine and an idea? One comes through the anointing. It comes through the Holy Spirit. Jesus says the Spirit is life. The words I speak to you are spirit and they are life. The flesh profits nothing. An idea is something man came up with. A doctrine is something that was revealed to him from heaven. It is a pattern and a plan for the Jerusalem that is descending. In Galatians 1.6, Paul warned, he says to the Galatians, he says, I am amazed. This was in Paul's day. Before before the Apostle Paul had died, the church had already started slipping into darkness. He said, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting God who called you by the grace of Jesus and choosing a different gospel, which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. In Paul's day, they were already being led astray. How much more 165 years after the fact? Then he says in Colossians 2.8, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy. What did he say that Justin Martyr still wore? Where was he trained? In Greek philosophy, in Neoplatonism. They still were, 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 were marinated, were totally saturated in the thinking of the world. To be carnally minded is death. And yet they brought that and exported it into the church. Paul warned against it. He said, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men. Whenever somebody starts answering scripture with tradition, you're about to be taken captive. See to it that no one takes you captive through empty philosophy according to the tradition of men according to the elementary principles of the world rather than according to Christ. He says to Timothy, I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. In Paul's day, there were already things that were, that is strange. Where on earth did you get that? Give it some time and it'll be church dogma. 
In 1 Timothy 4, he says, But the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. So it is the devil's business to put false materials in the unshakable tower of truth. And the name of the Lord is a strong tower, and the righteous run into it and are safe. And the devil said, Can I offer some building materials? We can make that a less than strong tower. We can make that something that when the shaking comes, there ain't going to be nothing left but rubble. That's why he calls it a doctrine of demons. False prophets also rose among the people, just as there will be among you. This is Peter. Just as there will be false teachers among you. Now, does he say there might be false teachers or does he say there will be? Yeah. Just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, denying the master who bought them and bringing swift destruction upon themselves. And we would like to think of doctrine and truth as somewhat inconsequential. Do you believe Jesus is your personal Savior? Fantastic. We're all brothers in Christ. Doctrine, don't get stuck in the weeds. You know, it doesn't really matter. Oh, you know, we all have a different viewpoint. But Paul calls them doctrines of demons. And he says that they are destructive heresies. So when we get something wrong on the foundational level, or we get something wrong in our doctrine, we're inviting destruction into the church. Conversely, if destruction is taking place in the church, if the church is being ransacked in 2019, then we need to look at our attitude toward truth and say, God, where did we, get some, where did we pick up some building materials from the devil? Where did we pick up some notions about truth that were absolutely not from the New Testament and the foundation of the apostles and prophets? Is heresy harmless? Or is heresy destructive? You say, oh, I'm afraid to even use the word heresy because they've used it horribly throughout the centuries. Well, heresy just means private interpretation. Somebody's coming up with something that's not from God. Remember what Paul says in Romans, thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of doctrine to which you were committed. I want you to listen closely to his words. He says, thanks be to God. He makes a juxtaposition here that though you were slaves to sin, you became obedient from the heart, not from the head, to that form of doctrine to which you were committed. He does not say to that form of doctrine that was committed to you. He says to that form that you were committed to. What is he talking about? Is that how we think about doctrine? Is that how we think about the truth? That there is a form that the Christian, that the church is committed to? 
Doctrine makes up the form of the body of Christ. It is the exoskeleton of Jesus on the earth. Amen. Inside this, these walls, there are important pieces of wood and structural elements and studs and there are, there are headers above every window and there are nails and there are gussets and if you take off the skin, there's something pretty structural behind it. In the same way with the human body, there's a lot of flexibility and motion and the human body is incredible, but it's made up of inflexible parts. If I try to flex this bone between this joint and this joint, that's pretty painful, isn't it? In fact, to do so is to debilitate and cripple the body. So there's a form that provides the skeleton, the context for the Christian. And if that form is flawed, to what is the Christian going to be committed? Into what is he, how is his life going to be formed according to the image of God's son? Brother Norman, when we were in Israel a couple weeks ago, you told us that you, part of what you do is manage, is help manage a company that creates, that does die casting. Is this correct? Does casting of some kind. Investment casting. Okay, so he's talking to us about he does casting for a living, and the way they do it is they have a form, and into that form, wax is poured. Then the form is broken away, and the wax is the form, and into that wax, ceramic is poured. And then the wax is taken away, and into the ceramic, aluminum is poured. And, it, and then the ceramic is broken away, and the aluminum is the finished product. What does this illustrate? It illustrates how forms work. If we as Christians are soft clay, as he says, can the clay say to the potter, what are you making? If we are soft clay, if we are ceramic, then God is wanting to pour us into a form that is going to produce a certain image. And what is that image? Is it the image of the world? Is it the image of some Frankenstein freak? Combination between the world and Christ? What is the image that we are supposed to be presenting to the world? It's the image of God's Son, isn't it? That you be not conformed. What does he say? Be not conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed. If the church looks indistinguishable from the world, it's because it's conformed. It's formed with, conformed by the patterns of this world. If the church would change its patterns to be the patterns of God, the patterns of the truth, then its appearance and its whole image, its whole reality would begin to change. And people would say, this is the image of Jesus. This is not some Frankenstein amalgamation. Who messed up our form? 
who ruined our foundations. I didn't know what Brother Evan was going to talk on, but within a hundred years after the departure of Jesus, the church was already losing the gifts of the Spirit. And when you lose the reality of the Spirit, you replace it with what man has made. When Moses goes up on the mountain, they start making calves. Remember, Aaron said, oh, we just took the gold and tossed it in and out came a calf. Not quite. <laughs> you had to work at that a little bit. <laughs> but we never make the image of God. We mirror the images we saw in Egypt. We return to what we knew when we relied on the flesh, when the spirit was no reality in our lives. Within a hundred years of the apostolic age, the church was losing the gifts of the spirit. People were no longer speaking in tongues. Prophecies were no longer coming forth. It was drying up. By 165, well-meaning men, I believe Justin Martyr was a well-meaning man, but he was bringing in confusing, messed up combinations of vain philosophy from the world and trying to combine it with Christianity. By 250, people like Origen were trying to get their minds around the nature of God and were trying to articulate it a little better and they were getting further and further from the truth. Clement of Alexandria came along in the same time poor gentleman never underwent a conversion experience. He was a pagan and he was traveling one day and sleeping by the side of the road that night and had a dream. And in the dream, he saw dead Christian saints beating him with sticks. And he said, ah, it's time for me to become a Christian. Woke up the next morning and it was done. Not exactly a Pauline conversion on the road to Damascus, but you know, who wants to get stuck in the weeds of the details, you know? He was a rabid anti-Semite, Clement of Alexandria. They hated the Jewish roots of the church, and he was desperate to see the church saved from Jewish heresy, as he put it. That's why he loved the Trinity as he described it. He said, this delivers us from the blasphemy of Jewish heresy. By 325, Constantine has done, has perpetrated his great con, co-opting the influence of the church without ever accepting Jesus or coming to any level of faith. There's absolutely no evidence of it at all. By 425, good old Augustine of Hippo is pontificating and coming up with more of what man can manufacture. He, he receives a letter from a nobleman, a Roman nobleman who doesn't want to become a Christian. And the nobleman accuses Augustine. Even in the 400s, the nobleman says, I would become a Christian except you guys don't believe in, in uh, participating in government or in war or violence. And Augustine says, well, not so fast. I mean, Christians, this is 400 years. The United States has been around for 250 years almost. It'd be like trying to say that changes that were made now reflected what was done when the founders wrote the Constitution. 
<laughs> That's how long it took for Christianity to apostatize, but it did happen. So Augustine wrote this guy and he said, well, we believe in a, a cruel kind of kindness. So he said, he said we, we believe Christians can engage in a cruel kind of kindness and that he gave the whole justification for just war, trying to appease the Romans who didn't want to convert. Christianity lost all resemblance to the body of Christ that it once was. By the 900s, debauchery was rampant. Unimaginable debauchery. The church had split. Western and Eastern churches had split. The Pope, it was called the reign of the harlots. The papacy was purchased. An influential family put in prostitutes who killed one pope and then put in another pope. The pope who came into power sold it uh, to another guy. And it was absolute debauchery, sodomy and debauchery on an epic scale. The solution to this was not to come to repentance, but for the Roman Catholic Church, the solution was to bring more of the mind of man. It was to systematize Christianity. I hope that's the right word. And so through Gregory VII, I believe it was, he, he uh, spearheaded what my dad has talked to us about recently, the papal revolution. And basically realizing what the church had lost and wanting to shore up the church's image in the eyes of the world and reassert the church's power that had erupted through the investiture controversy, uh, he, he decided that the solution was to combine Roman law, which was Justinian code, with canon law and New Testament ethics. He said, I know what we got to do. We got to make a combination. <laughs> we got to make a big mixture, an amalgamation. Let's, let's combine all this together, systematize it, make a rigid code, and then we won't need the Holy Spirit because we have the letter that kills. And it literally killed a lot of people. But he created the ultimate Babylonian confusion because his salvation for the Western world was to combine these really disparate elements into one and say, here are your gods, worship them. Worship Western law and order. Here it is. Amen. Now we don't need the spirit. But at that very time, when the church reached its ultimate Babylonian combination, God began to move among some of his people. Destructive heresies had been introduced and they had brought the promised destruction. Many were led astray and because of them, the way of the truth was blasphemed. But then in Lyon, France, southern France, God begins to move on the heart of an obscure nobleman. I want to talk to you about people who took steps of restoration. And there's not a one of them that I'm holding up as an apostle. There's not a one of them that I'm holding up as Jesus. But these all died in faith, not having received what was promised. But they can be made perfect through us. 
if we'll continue what they began. So I want to give honor where honor is due, and I want to acknowledge where they fell short. The Bible tells us when people did right, and it says he did this and he did that and he did this, but he did not tear down the high places. He pleased the Lord in this manner, and he pleased the Lord in that manner, but he still offered on the high places. Does it not? So we can respect the benefits of Solomon without ignoring the faults that he committed. And that's what we want to do here. God began to tell people, God began to stir in the hearts of people and say to them, there's more. You can come out of this darkness. In the city of Lyon in southern France, two events unfold in the life of a young man or a middle-aged man by the name of Peter Waldo in 1170. That's really the first big step out of darkness, 1170. It was the sudden passing of a friend that first moved him. And then hearing a traveling minstrel pass by singing a, a spiritual song. And he said his soul began to be inwardly troubled about his salvation. And he began to pray. He wanted to know the, the Bible and so he acquired a Latin New Testament, but his Latin was, was insufficient. And so he hired two translators who spoke in his local vernacular to translate the Bible. So the Bible is brought back into the language of the people the first time in 1173. He goes to a priest and the priest speaks the word of God to him and quotes to him, from Luke 18:22, one thing you lack, sell everything you have and give it to the poor and come follow me. And in a great display of faith and devotion, this incredibly wealthy man sold all his lands, all his possessions, everything he had. He was desperate to have some kind of real relationship with God. In his lifetime, a, a small band of them came together and they were called the poor people of Lyon because in their effort to show faith in God, they divested themselves of their worldly possessions. They rejected all authority except Scripture. That's the first thing on the list, and I want to tell you something. I said earlier that whenever someone starts answering Scripture with tradition, they're about to take you captive through vain philosophy. Amen? I cannot find one exception in all of the reformers and restorers. They all had one thing in common. They explicitly stated that the Word of God, the Bible, was the sole source for truth and doctrine and standard and pattern in the church. They did not combine that with so-called church fathers who still wore philosophic robes. They said the New Testament was it. That's what's going to take us all the way. He rejected all authority except scripture, rejected purgatory, and thus its indulgences and prayers for the dead, rejected the so-called veneration of relics, pilgrimages, and the use of holy water, rejected the Pope's claim to authority over all earthly rulers, eventually rejected the apostolic succession of the Pope. When the Waldensians came under persecution by the Archbishop of Lyon, Peter Waldo personally appealed directly to Pope Alexander II. And he received approval to continue in his faith. However, just five years later, a new pope came to power, Lucius III. 
And he said, and he sided with the archbishop and excommunicated Waldo and his followers, making him an outlaw and subject to incessant persecution and harassment from all governments. Despite excommunication and the passing of Waldo, the movement continued to grow, spreading into northern Italy and regions of Spain, Austria, Germany, Hungary, and Poland. But the child of the bondwoman always persecutes the child of promise. And the Waldensians were hunted, hounded, deprived of their property, forced underground. But they continued to persist, oftentimes in obscure communities in the Alpine valleys of France and Italy. At just the time when the church's adulteration was complete. At just the time when the last distinctions were obscured and the confusion made total. A little tiny flame burst forth in the mountains and hills of France and Italy and it would burn until it caught fire throughout all of Europe. God has always had a people and the people walking in darkness began to see the light. Just a couple hundred years later, less than 170 years later, in 1330, a man is born by the name of John Wycliffe. He's called the Morning Star of the Reformation. Line upon line, Isaiah says, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little, until with stammering lips and another tongue I will speak to this people, saying this is the rest. God doesn't restore us in one great leap. He sends one little step after another so that we can have the faith and capacity to walk as the stumbling, feeble, inadequate children that we are. In Hosea 4, it says, My people are destroyed for their lack of knowledge. The Catholic system and the total adulteration in Babylon was not possible unless they were robbed of their capacity to know the word of God. They were destroyed for their lack of knowledge. Don't let them read the scripture. The scripture was only printed in Latin so that none of the common people could know it. But in the 1300s at Oxford University in Great Britain, a famed philosopher was teaching. His name was William Occam, famous for Occam's razor. At the same university, at the same time, there was another man also on faculty. His name was John Wycliffe. He lectured and wrote in the field of philosophy, philosophy but found himself wandering from this vain conceit and yearning for the truth of the Bible. His thirst for the word of God compelled him to study it thoroughly. And this awakened in Wycliffe the startling revelation of the degree to which the Catholic Church had departed from its origins. According to Roman Catholic law, translating the Bible into a, quote, vulgar common language was heresy and punishable by death. But this did not deter Wycliffe. He boldly proclaimed the scriptures. He brought together a group of scholars. They didn't pretend to put forth doctrine. They just said, we got to reopen the law. Something from the pages of the Bible, something from the courts of Josiah was happening in the world. For the first time in history, the words of God were printed in the English language. There was no printing press. There was no sponsorship of any government, but they hand copied the New Testament into hundreds of manuscripts and sent them to pastors all over England and into Europe. 
1412, the Council of Constance would try another reformer and also Wycliffe, though he was already dead, and they dug up the bones of John Wycliffe and burned them. So great was their hatred to see their stranglehold being torn down. Meanwhile, in Bohemia, more steps of, revel of restoration were being taken. Peter Chelsky is considered one of the most influential thinkers of the, of the Bohemian Reformation, which is what is now Czech Republic. This was in the uh, uh, early to mid-1400s. Peter Chelsky was the first one to say the Christian has no place in politics. The Christian cannot engage in violence. He became a great inspiration to Leo Tolstoy hundreds of years later. He was an influential. He was part of the same Reformation that John Huss was a part of. They didn't have the full revelation, but they were discontent with staying in their darkness. They said, God, we're going to take one step. And not very many followed in Peter Chelsky's revelations. He was a little bit ahead of his time, but he wrote them down. And they would later be picked up by men in the 1500s and carried many, many more miles down the track. John Huss was tried at that Council of Constance. He was an, a, a Bohemian nobleman and he was executed there, found a heretic and executed for his faith. But he, his followers came together and agreed that they would call themselves the unity of the brethren, more famously known as the Moravians. They put an emphasis on prayer you can't pray to the Lord with all your heart and not expect something to happen. They would later play a pivotal role in the whole history and unfolding of Christianity. These are some quotes from Peter Chelsky. Our faith obliges us to bind wounds and not to make them or to make blood run. He who obeys God need obey no other authority. You cannot improve society without first destroying the foundations of the existing social order. The church rather likes a wicked king. For this man, if sufficiently intoxicated by her poisons, will fight for her far better than a humble Christian ever would. Quote, wars and other kinds of murder have their beginning in the hatred of the enemy and in the unwillingness to be patient with evil. Their root is in intemperate self-love and an immoderate affection for temporal possessions. These conflicts are brought into this world because men do not trust the Son of God enough to abide by his commandments. This is in the 1300s and early 1400s. One more piece was brought to the table. Imagine this form of Christ. Imagine it like a great vase or some beautiful piece. And imagine that it is shattered into a million pieces. And that all the pieces are gathered and carried to the four corners of the earth. It takes a while for these pieces to come back together. But God has been pulling together all things that are in Christ. So that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he can bring them together and present to the world 
the image of the body of Jesus such as it has never seen before. And then, in 1505, a young man is studying to be a lawyer, and his father is paying for his education. He's in Germany. He's a raucous young man, finding trouble, making trouble. But in 1505, he finds himself in an electrical storm. He's huddling in shelter, bolts of lightning, claps of thunder, and the fear of God are hammering into his heart. He promises right there in the midst of the storm that if the Lord will help him get out alive, he will devote his life to God. His name is Martin Luther. At 21, Luther made the radical move to quit law school and become an Augustinian monk. By 23, he's a priest and is preaching in area churches. He makes a pilgrimage to Rome and there climbs the steps that are supposed to take off decades of purgatory. And at the top of those steps is the first time he says, really, is this the truth? Or is this just a big farce to raise money for the Pope? He sees the opulency in Rome. He sees the Pope's palace and the, the Pope is undergoing a massive renovation of the Sistine Chapel and the whole Papal Palace and, and he is troubled. Remember, he's a Catholic priest. He goes back to Germany and the Pope's goons show up and start uh, playing songs and giving fanfare, that, trying to raise money for more papal luxury. And it says, uh, when a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. So that was their song. That was an actual quote. So, <clears throat> and Luther is scratching his head. He, he's, he's feeling some agitation in his spirit about what he can clearly see is... is uh, is Babylon. And he starts writing and preaching against these excesses. But he doesn't stop there. He says that he's got to translate the New Testament into German. First, he just starts writing these pamphlets and saying, this is not from God. This is not our roots. This is not the truth. Amen. He is called to a diet in Worms. And there it is presided over by Charles V of the Holy Roman Empire, a devoutly religious man in his own right. I'll digress from getting into some of his details. But, um, and in that trial, uh, a cross-section of European princes and noblemen are actually present, and a large group of German Christians are present in the galley. And the prosecutor challenges him intensely and says, who are you, this is a quote, who are you to go up against 1,500 years of church tradition and dogma? Luther's, the accusation brought against him was, why are you departing from church tradition? And his response was, we have no legitimate tradition other than the scripture. Solo scriptura. Scripture alone. In his own words, he said, 
unless you can convince me by the scriptures with clear reasoning, I am bound by my beliefs. I cannot and I will not recant. May God help me. Amen. At this time in his life, he said, the true church can be described as those Christians who meet in homes and farmsteads to worship, to baptize, and to pray. Something was stirring to restore the body of Christ and to come out of this adultery of Babylon. But he was condemned as a heretic, labeled an outlaw, and could, his life could be taken by any man in the empire. He left that diet in Worms, and on his way he was kidnapped. Thinking that he had been taken by his enemies, he was preparing to die when he realized that in fact he had been taken by some militant friends. He was ensconced in a castle and found refuge under a friendly prince for a season. He changed his name, grew a beard, but there, though he battled, in his own words, he said he battled depression. There in that castle, he completed the translation of the Bible into the German language. Quote, we need to pledge ourselves anew to the cause of Christ. We must capture the spirit of the early church. Wherever the early Christians went, they made a triumphant witness of Jesus. Whether on the village streets or in the city jails, they daringly proclaimed the good news of the gospel. Martin Luther. Yes, I see the church as the body of Christ. But oh, how we have blemished and scarred that body through social neglect and through fear of being nonconformists. Martin Luther. Through prayer and study of the book of Romans, he came to the revelation, however inadequate, however partial, he came to the revelation that justification is through faith, that we must actually believe and act upon that belief in order to call ourselves justified, that no amount of human doing can ultimately suffice for a real heartfelt faith of Abraham as Paul put forth. Granite, Luther got off course. Why did he get off course? Because he combined with these princes. And I don't judge him. God used it just as surely as he used the kings that he said were a rejection of his kingship. God used it. In the end, he began to persecute those who took further steps beyond his faith. In the end, he was an accomplice in the persecution of Anabaptists and other Christians. But we can thank God for the steps of faith he took and then not ignore, but he refused to tear down the high places. Another piece of the shattered body, another piece of the broken form was gathered into the room and laid upon the table. Justification by faith came into light again. At the same time, in Switzerland, Two reformers were coming to the same convictions, corresponding a little with Luther, actually, and being inspired by his steps. One of these reformers was a man by the name of 
John Calvin. He was actually born in Paris. I don't know what to say about him except he got some of the good of Luther and a lot of bad that Luther didn't get. Um, I don't really have anything good to say about him. Uh, he brought way too much from Paris into uh, Geneva. He, he was an, a brilliantly intelligent man and no doubt he, he gave people the confidence to take steps of faith although I would have a hard time saying that he was a man of faith himself. God used him perhaps against his own rebellion against God. When a man disagreed with his view of the Godhead, Michael Servetus, under false pretenses, he promised Michael Servetus safe passage to a free and open discussion with good old Jean Chavon, John Calvin. And when Michael Servetus came, he broke his word, imprisoned the man, and ordered that he be burned to death slowly over green wood pulled on a cart through the streets of Geneva to demonstrate how dangerous such heresies of belief in the oneness of God were. So we can talk about John Calvin afterwards. It'll be a test of nonviolent convictions, brother. <laughs> At the same time in Zurich, there was a, a peasant turned priest who began to be seized with the zeal of God. His name was Ulrich Zwingli. He began to, to, to minister under the power of the Spirit. And he began to say that we had to abandon the relics. We had to abandon these extra biblical notions of purgatory and so on and so forth. He, uh, he uh, promoted uh, uh, ending the mass. And he was so influential that he attracted about a dozen students. And at the top of his class were three of his brightest scholars by the name of Conrad Grable, Felix Mons, and George Blarock. He began to teach these men that infant baptism was unbiblical. He was the first, not Luther, not Calvin, none of the other reformers had seen this. He said, you can't baptize an infant because it says he who believes and is baptized shall be saved. It says it's the pledge of a good conscience. What Luther called the vow of a good conscience. How can an infant make a vow of a good conscience or a covenant of a good conscience? And so he began to preach against infant baptism and say, we have to baptize adults. But the, the magistrates of Zurich saw infant baptism kind of as their social security program. And they knew that the state relied on this mechanism of the church for its organization and homogeny in the empire, in the, in, the, in the nation. And so they took him to task and began to threaten him. And lo and behold, he went back to the, to the Word of God. Oh, no, he went back to his study. I don't know that he went to the Word of God. And he came up with a counter-revelation. He said, you know what? Infant baptism is from the Bible. It's from God. Let's believe this. But his three students said, not so fast. You've already changed our lives. You've already spoken truths. You've made us see the light. We can't unsee it. And so a conflict developed between this reformer who sided with the magistrates and these three students who became labeled first and foremost as what? Radicals. They were simply called radicals. And who gave them that name? Zwingli. The very man who had taught them the things that they were holding to. He said, you're radical. And so it was a pejorative. It was like being called an extremist or a fanatic. You're radical. 
He didn't know that the word radical means to the root. Yes, they were radicals. They were trying to go a little deeper, Zwingli, than merely changing the surface. So these three men began to seek the word of God and pray. They began to meet together. There were about 15 of them. And on one particular day in the house of Felix Mons, we're told that they were studying the word of God and the spirit came upon them in conviction. And they all got down beside the table, around the table, and knelt in prayer, begging God to make them obedient to the truth that he was revealing to them. And the first to rise from his knees was a man by the name of George Blarock. He was 30 years old, the oldest of the three among this group of 15. And he said, men and brethren, I have been persuaded. I am convinced. I accept that Jesus is my Savior and my Lord with full knowledge and conviction. He said, I beg of you that you would baptize me as an adult. That very hour, Conrad Grable baptized him and George Blarock turned and baptized all the rest. These were not people with a commitment to tradition. These were not people enamored with the world. These were people who knew that the church had been in darkness for 1,500 years and they were desperate to give the truth a chance again. The only thing that has ever changed the world is religion. That's why Constantine had to steal Christianity. That's why every president invokes God. That's why empires have appealed to the name of God. They don't have the power. The church is the most powerful force in the world. It is the threat to all the kingdoms of this world. All they can do to stop it is to assimilate it, to pervert it, to adulterate it, and hide it in a mixture of Babylon. If it would ever come out, oh God, he would give power to his witnesses such as never before. It would rise up as an unstoppable army, not with the sword of the flesh, but with the love of God, with the spirit of power. We would see Red Seas part. We would see pillars of fire lead. We would see miracles take place. Amen. We would see the kingdom of God on the earth. Zwingli didn't like the baptism, neither, neither did the magistrates. They ordered that all who had not been baptized as children be baptized within eight days. They disobeyed. They caught George Blarock and Felix Mons preaching in a nearby town and brought them swiftly to the council in Zurich. There they were tried and found guilty of heresy. On a January afternoon in the cold of a Swiss winter, they brought Felix Mons from the church in Zurich and led him to the Lamont River. And all the while, a multitude from Zurich is gathered. And all the while, they're taking him to the river. A Protestant minister, one of Zwingli's followers, not a Catholic, I said a Protestant minister, is standing in his face saying, you can recant, you can recant, you can recant. But the voice of his mother and sister cried out from the crowd, Be faithful for the glory and name of Jesus, Felix. And he was silently led out into a boat. His hands were bound behind his knees and a broomstick inserted between 
and the guards unceremoniously plunged him beneath the frigid water. But before they did, the crowd heard his last words. Lord Jesus, into thy hands I commit my spirit. And many in the crowd did not see a religion. They did not see a tradition. They did not see something that man had made. They saw something that could not be shaken. They saw faith. Until their death, Zwingli protested that he had no real disagreement with Conrad Grable. He said he's just impatient. Give it time and these changes will come. He said, his dispute with me over baptism is really inconsequential. Well, then why did you drown him in the river if it was inconsequential? Truth is not inconsequential. That's why the empires of hate do everything in their power to destroy it. Truth is transformative. Conrad Grable was only 25 when he received when he was baptized, when he received the revelation. And before he was 28, before he, when he was 27 years old, he was arrested, imprisoned in the dungeon of Zurich. And in those damp, harsh conditions with only bread and water, his health was broken. His Anabaptist brothers broke him out of jail without harming anybody. It was kind of like Peter. <laughs> they broke him out of jail and uh, he fled to the canton of his sister, and there he died at the age of 27, having lived as an Anabaptist for only one and a half years. But he changed the world. He introduced to Western culture the principle of a separation between church and state. He was the brainchild, or rather the vessel through whom God revealed this truth. George Blarock, on the same at the same time that Felix was arrested, George Blarock, who was 30 years old, was taken to the eastern gate of Zurich. And they stripped him of all his clothes and they had a guard stand behind him, one on either side. And with solid rods, they beat him from behind, from the top of his head to the soles of his feet as they drove him down the main Boulevard down the main street that run, ran through Zurich from the eastern gate to the western gate with all the city jeering and standing by. And when he got just beyond the, the threshold of the western gate, trembling and battered from his beating, to the amazement of the crowd, he stooped down and untied his sandals, lifted them and shook the dust off his feet and said, your judgment be on your heads. I will preach the gospel where they want to hear it. He went to the next town and began to proclaim the truth. And it spread like fire. Fire in the hills of Zurich. Fire in the Alps of France. Fire leaping and dancing through every farm and village throughout that whole region. Less than 10 years later, a Catholic monk 
saw a man in his own parish beheaded because he was an Anabaptist, a Catholic priest. And this priest's name was Minnow Simons. And he saw a faith that could not be shaken. And he began to study the New Testament. Minnow Simons became a prominent leader in the Netherlands of the Anabaptists. And he took it several more steps down the road. He said, once more, Christ is our fortress. Patience, our weapon of defense. The word of God is our sword and our victory, a courageous, firm, unfeigned faith in Jesus Christ. And iron and metal, spears and swords, we leave to those who, alas, regard human blood and swine's blood about the same. He that is wise, let him judge what I say. Men of Simons. that they should not be made perfect without us. Did they have everything? Were they perfect? No, no. But they moved the boundary toward heaven. They advanced the frontier toward the shores of a better country. Amen. Meanwhile, within less than 100 years, the Puritan movement in England is giving birth to radical ideas and a group develops called the Separatists. The Puritans were merely an extra conservative form of the Church of England, of the Anglican Church. They were devout and they, they took it some distance. But then there were those among them who said, we cannot attempt to change the system when the foundation is flawed. And so they said, we have got to separate. We've got to come out. And they became known as the separatists. They were persecuted in England and chased to Holland. And there in Holland, William Bradford and John Robinson were two of the pastors. And they were yearning to find a place where they could express their faith. They were yearning to find a place where they would be free to advance the frontier a few more miles toward the kingdom. Revelations 12 says, A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, who does Paul call Jerusalem from above the mother of us all? A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and all on her head a crown of 12 stars. And she was with child. And she cried out being in labor and pain to give birth. This is a vision of the church wanting to give birth to an authentic expression of the body of Christ. And the church was in pain. Every leader in Germany was put to death among the Anabaptist movement. They were hounded, they were hunted, they were imprisoned, they were burned at the stake. They gave their lives just to give us the word of God. William Tyndall, he didn't have the revelation, but he gave his life, burned at the stake in the London Square and his crying, his dying words were, God, Open the eyes of the king of England. No, no, God, open the eyes of the church to leave the king of England and come back to King Jesus. The woman was in pain, being in labor to give birth. 
Then another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were, on his heads were seven diadems. And his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. So this, this embodiment of evil, this picture of, of statist government power is breathing down the neck of this church that is trying to bring forth an authentic expression of the body of Christ again on the earth. What is the body of Christ except the body of the anointed one? You cannot have the body of Christ without an anointing. But they were so close. They were, it was gestating in the womb of the church. And it says, And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God to his throne. Then the woman fled to the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that there she would be nourished. And what was this fleeing into the wilderness? It was when the church said, where can we go? Where can we hide? Every time we take a breath in the spirit, every time we take a step of faith, the empires of man are waiting there to slay us by the sword to burn us at the stake to take our children from us and rumblings started being heard of a new place a place in the wilderness far across the Atlantic Ocean on the shores of a new country amen and so this little band of about 120 Christians in the Netherlands started dreaming of making a trip to America. Amen. And they did. They quoted Peter when he said, we are pilgrims and strangers in the earth. And so they became known as the pilgrims. Before they left on that voyage, their pastor, John Robinson, gave them this declaration. This is a quote from his last sermon to his congregation before setting sail for America. I charge you before God and his blessed angels that you follow me no further than you have seen me follow the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord has more truth yet to break forth from his holy word. I cannot sufficiently bewail the condition of the reformed churches who are come to a period in religion and will go at present no further than the instruments of their reformation. Luther and Calvin were great and shining lights in their times, yet they did not penetrate into the full counsel of God. I beseech you, remember, keep it as an article of your church covenant that you be ready to receive whatever truth shall be made known to you from the written word of God. But take heed what you receive for truth and examine, compare, and weigh it well with the scriptures. It is not possible that the Christian world should so lately come out of such anti-Christian darkness that we, that full perfection of knowledge should break forth at once. And with this commission, they set sail to America. The promise to receive whatever God would reveal from his holy word. And there in America, in another colony, in Boston, another man started feeling 
like there were more steps to take. His name was Roger Williams. He had been influenced strongly by the Anabaptists and the Swiss Brethren, and he was stirred to the, sta- to the same faith and attitude toward a believer's baptism as they. And as some of the- them had, he believed in baptism by immersion. His name was Roger Williams, known also as the founder of the Baptist Church in America. This Baptist of Baptists, he was hunted, he was arrested, he was tried in America as a criminal under the prestigious clergyman, John Cotton. John Cotton did not have anything nice to say about uh, Roger Williams. In fact, this is his indictment. This is his legal indictment sent back to England against Roger Williams. Can I read it to you? What did his enemies say about him? Roger Williams has fallen away from his ministry. And then from all church fellowship, and then from his baptism, and was himself baptized again, and then he fell away from the Lord's Supper, and from all ordinances of Christ dispensed in any church way, till, quote, God shall stir up himself or some other new apostles to recover and restore all the ordinances and churches of Christ out of the ruins of anti-Christian apostasy, quote, unquote. He's condemning Roger Williams because Roger Williams said, I'm, I'm giving up all the things that I've done as a minister in the Anglican church. I'm giving it all up until God reveals it to me. I'm not going to do communion until God reveals it to me. I'm not going to do church until God reveals it to me. This was their indictment against him. This is Roger Williams in his own words. He, he, was, he fled from Boston and escaped in his, in his late 70s, escaped across a, a frigid river um, in the middle of winter and fled and took refuge among the Indians and established a new colony that later became known as Rhode Island. Providence, Rhode Island, because he said God had shown him providence. This is Roger Williams in his own words. At times I have been drawn to consider the little flock of Jesus, his army, his body, his building, that for these many hundred years has been scattered routed and laid waste and desolate. At present, I lonely examine who are the personal and particular sheep of Jesus, his soldiers, his living materials, though scattered, divided, and not composed and ordered at their soul's desire. Roger Williams, in his own words, I want you to listen carefully. He says, quote, it may please the Lord again to clothe his people with a spirit of zeal and courage for the name of Jesus. Yea, and to pour forth those fiery streams again of tongues and prophecy in the restoration of Zion. Jesus said, your father Abraham saw my day and rejoiced to see it. These all died in faith, not having received what was promised, but having seen it from afar, they welcomed it 
and acknowledged that they were aliens and strangers. If they had been mindful of the country from which they had come out, they would have had occasion to return. But as it was, they looked for a heavenly city, a better city. Amen. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared such a city for them whose builder and maker is God. Within a hundred years, two Anglican ministers came to America, John and Charles Wesley. John Wesley said, I came to America to convert the Indians, but who, O oh Lord, will ever convert me? But on the voyage over to America, another storm and another shaking came. And when John thought he was going to lose his life, he heard some Christians praying in a manner he'd never heard before. It was a band of Moravians. And he marveled at a faith that could not be shaken. It planted a seed in him. And it was years before, in reading the word of God and in prayer one particular night, he said, a great warmth came over me. And I knew that I had been changed from the inside out. The same thing happened to his brother Charles. Charles says, on May 21st, 1738, he experienced Pentecost, he said. And we don't know that they spoke in tongues. That's not what I'm saying. But the Holy Spirit was beginning to express itself more than just words on a page. He was beginning to move the hearts of people to come to a true repentance. He wrote in his journal, the Spirit of God chased away the darkness of my unbelief. And he reached out to his brother that very hour. It says that, that he was half carried by his friends into the room where his brother was as they were rejoicing over this change that had taken place. And another peace was brought to the table. Repentance and faith toward God. Amen. The Wesleys took us far in our understanding of what it means to come to true bedrock repentance. Before he died, John Wesley and Charles authored six thousand hymns, 25,000 miles, mostly on horseback of preaching. They were said to have changed the course of England in their day. 50,000 sermons preached. I want to read you one of their hymns. Come, thou long expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the world thou art. Dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. Born thy people to deliver, born a child and yet a king. Born to reign in us forever. Now thy gracious kingdom bring. By thine own eternal spirit, rule in all our hearts alone. By thine all-sufficient merit, raise us to thy glorious throne. John Wesley was famous for this quote. I am not afraid that the people called Methodist should ever cease to exist either in Europe or America. But I am afraid lest they should only exist as a dead sect, having the form of religion without the power thereof.
And it was from the Wesleys that another group called the Holiness Movement. On the final frontier of America, having made the pilgrimage to the West Coast in Los Angeles in a street called Azusa, in 1906, they began to pray and seek the face of God. There's more, Lord. There's more. There's more of your spirit, your spirit who would reign in our hearts. There's more of your power. There's more of your anointing. There's more of your grace. And there in 1906, the baby was born, crying with power, speaking in tongues. At the same time, in Topeka, Kansas, in Azusa Street, and from that, a revival swept through Wales, through all of, of England and Britain. Finally, the anointing had returned, and the body could have the anointing that would legitimize its claim as the body of Christ. We are told in Acts 3.20, the heavens shall receive Jesus until the time of the restoration of all things. We're told in Acts 15, with the words of the prophet, we agree, just as it is written, after these things I will return and restore the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and I will rebuild its ruins, I will restore it, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name. So now, what do we have to do? Well, we would say that God has revealed more truth. It is only by walking the miles of those who came before that we can arrive at this place today. But God has revealed an administration suitable for the fullness of time in giving us an understanding of church order and government and the fivefold ministry and the plan for community and family. God has revealed his nature in our lifetime, in these days, through the revelation of the atonement of Christ and the nature of God, not as a God of wrath, but as a God of love, God in Christ reconciling the world to himself. God has revealed a plan and an alternative for the church to come out, to still witness to the world, to still be a city set upon a hill, to still bring the evangel, the gospel, but with a lifestyle that is a separate kingdom and an alternative culture. It says in Ephesians 1.10, in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he will gather together in one place all things that are in Christ. And that is what God is doing. Too many throughout the generations have built little churches and tabernacles around each piece. They said, oh, here's, here's a shard, here's a section, Let's call this Lutheranism. And another, let's call this Pentecostalism. Oh, here's another, let's call this the Baptist Church. But today, he's wanting to put the pieces together and pour our lives, our families, our fellowships, our churches into this form of godliness and then give it the power thereof, amen, so that all of it can come together in one and we can see the complete picture of what God has called us to be on the face of the earth. Most important time in the history of the church is dawning on us right now. This is our time. This is the day. So what are you going to do?
Do you want to see the full picture? Are you ashamed at the inadequacies of the church? Are you inspired by the pilgrims and pioneers of faith? Are you commissioned to not stop short, but to let them become perfect through your obedience? Then let us build his kingdom, not with bricks and steel, nor with sword and spear, but let us build his kingdom with what God reveals. Let us build it of lively stones. Let us build it with the nails of faithfulness and the gussets of truth and the beams of righteousness. Let us build it on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Can I share a verse that's on my heart? It's just what comes right after this. You've referenced uh, Hebrews 11 and the whole recounting of the the heroes of faith. Those that died having not received the promise that they not be made perfect without us. And what's burning on my heart with what we've heard here today is what immediately follows. And it says, since then, the whole thing is a charge to us. Since then, we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses then let us throw aside every weight and every hindrance, the sin that so easily entangles and assimilates us, and let us run with endurance the race that is yet before us, the lap that is still in front of us. Let's run it with perseverance, looking unto Jesus, who was the author, the founder, the beginner, and the finisher, the complete.